Hello, and welcome again to At Length with Steve Scher. Thanks for downloading this podcast. I'd like to hear from you. Thoughts, comments, ideas for improvements. You can email me at lengthwithsteveshare at gmail.com. Share is S-C-H-E-R. No spaces. Here's a conversation with Charles C. Mann, longtime correspondent for The Atlantic, Science, Wired. He's covered a lot of stories that come at the intersection of science, technology, commerce, and human understanding. He's the author of 1491 and 1493 among his books. He's also written for HBO and Law and Order. He's a three-time National Magazine Award finalist. His new book looks at the debate we as a species are having. How are we going to manage all the people on the planet, all their demands, all their needs for food and housing? Are we even going to be able to manage it? Are we instead going to do what most species do and devour ourselves? So he looks at that question. It's a cheery subject. Have a listen. Hi, Charles Mann. Hi, how are you? Good. I appreciate this book, by the way. Oh, thank you. And I, and I appreciate you talking to me today about it. As befits a book that is trying to say on the one hand and on the other, let's take a broader view, two remarkable scientists and their dueling visions to shape tomorrow's world. What's the view of a wizard? What's the view of a prophet? It's really started when my daughter was born 19 years ago. And, uh, you know, if you're a father, you'll know that they throw you out of the hospital so the people who actually do some work can uh, get some rest. And... Uh, as I was standing there in the parking lot at three o'clock in the morning, it suddenly occurred to me that when Amelia was my age, there was going to be almost 10 billion people in the world. And then a second thought occurred, which was that I think that when historians look back hundreds of years from now at the time that you and I have been alive, the big event that they're going to be talking about is that huge numbers of people in Asia, Latin America and a lesser extent um, Africa, you know, yanked themselves out of poverty into something like the middle class. So there's going to be 10 billion people a huge number of those people are going to be middle class and they're going to want all the things we want. Um, you know, occasional treats, they're going to cars, uh, air conditioning. At one point I was going to call the book Toblerone for 10 billion. So as I was thinking about this and as I was doing other work, I would you know, talk to scientists and so on. And they would say, and I would say, Hey, listen, you know, how are we going to do this? And after a while I realized that their answers fell into two broad categories. Um, each of which, Gradually, my mind became associated with a dead person nobody's ever heard of. And those are the wizard and prophet of my title. What, what was your goal in finally looking at Norman Borlaug, William Vogt, Norman Borlaug? What was, so your thoughts had crystallized about, around that, but what was your right. goal? Oh, I didn't have any goal. I was just um, thinking about what, uh, you know, really curious about this question. You know, what can I, you know, essentially you have a child and then, at least for me, I sort of thought, oh my gosh, what have I done? What have I unleashed her? You know, <laughs> where is she going? And uh, um, as I thought about these two visions of the, uh, of the future, I got curious and I started reading a little bit about them. And I was kind of astounded to realize the first is that even though um, Norman Borlaug, who I should probably say who he is, um, Borlaug is the principal figure in what's been called the Green Revolution. And that's the combination of high yielding grain varieties, um, artificial fertilizers and irrigation that absolutely made farm yields explode in the 60s and 70s. You know, when you and I were in, in high school growing up, it was commonplace prediction that there'd be massive starvations in the world. And it just simply didn't happen. And a big part of that was because of the Green Revolution, which Borlaug was the most important figure. And he became the symbol or emblem or what have you of the idea that science and technology 
properly applied will let us produce our way out of this. We'll get smart and we'll make more and we'll give everybody what we want. And vote really was the guy who sort of said, no, that's not going to work. Um, and he wrote the first modern we're all going to hell book, if you know what I mean, which is the and he is the guy who created, in essence, the modern environmental movement. And the fundamental idea, the foundational idea of the modern um, environmental movement is that there are limits. He called it carrying capacity. There's other things like planetary boundaries, ecological limits. There's a bunch of different names for it. But the basic idea is that there's only so much we can do before we exhaust the capacities of Earth's ecosystems. And, and so we, you know, we have to turn down the thermostats, put on our cardigan sweaters. If you think about it, these two ideas are kind of the opposite. And as I was reading about them, I realized that they both got their ideas at the same place at the same time, and they met and they hated each other. And I thought, well, this is kind of interesting. It's the kind of thing that uh, maybe a, a freelance writer like myself can make hay with. The same place being Central and South America? Yeah, uh, yeah, particularly uh, Central Mexico. And they were both down there in the 40s, and they, they looked at the same thing, the same landscape, and they came to radically opposite conclusions. It was desperately poor and super eroded. It was, it was a mess. And... Uh, Vote looked at it and said, the ecosystems here are just exhausted. You know, people have to stop farming here. They have to stop um, overusing the land. Borlaug looked at it and said, the people here are terribly poor. They need better tools. We need to provide them with better tools. Innovator cut back. Exactly. And, you know, the, the cutback people would say, okay, innovate all you want to, but you can't change the rules. The rules are, of nature are what they are, and you can fool yourself for a while, but ultimately you have, you know, nature bats last. That's this. And the innovators and guys say, well, there's a more, more room here than you think there is. The other person that runs through this book, uh, among others, is uh, the biologist Lynn Margulis, who, yes. who talks about the Petri dish, right? Now, where, yes. does, where do her ideas fit into this? Well, she thought that both Vote and Borlaug, or Votians and Borlaugians, who, who actually, that's a bad name. I call them wizards and prophets because Votian and Borlaugian sounds like something from Star Trek. You know, the Votians are landing, right? Um, <laughs> so um, she, basically, she thought they were both kidding themselves. And the reason, from her point of view, is, look, we can't escape the rules of biology. And that's Darwin's fundamental insight. The same rules apply to all of us. You know, on a, for, from the point of view of biology, we're the same as protozoa. Evolution applies. There's no exceptions. And the rule of biology is that when a species temporarily frees itself from the constraints of natural selection, which normally keeps species in bounds, when that happens, the species wipes itself out fairly quickly. And her uh, line was, it is the fate of every successful species to wipe itself out. And she said, we're a successful species. We're going to wipe ourselves out. Don't kid yourselves. That's the rules. And from her point of view, both of these guys who thought they were opposing were equally deluded. For all the different things that you look at to break it down, you look at food, you look at energy, you look at water, and then you look at climate change, so earth, air, water, and fire. Um, but she's there sort of to say, well, wait a minute, let's let's look at what the fundamentals are of, of science, of biology. How does, how does she right. work for you? Exactly. That's what I kind of imagined. Because when I was listening to people, I would always have, if you like, a little version of Lynn in the back of my head going, yeah, yeah, that's what you think. It isn't going to work. And I, th I think that's actually a serious question. You have to say, are we exceptional? And be before you can imagine that we're going to save yourselves, you have to say human beings are exceptional. And what are the odds that that's true, that us alone out of the billions and billions of species on Earth are the ones who, for whom the rules don't apply? And so the last part of the book is an attempt to say, obviously you can't predict the future, but what is the evidence that Lynn is wrong? Yeah. Are we exceptional? 
Well, we're going to find out, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you and I, if, if our children are meeting, uh, you know, 200 years from now, the answer will probably will be pretty good evidence that we are. Um, from her point of view, climate change looked like a pretty good example of a species wiping itself out. And the Petri dish you were talking about was her favorite example. When they, you know, you put some protozoa in the Petri dish, it's got lots of nutrient goo. They multiply like crazy. They hit the edge of the Petri dish and then they die. They drown in their own wastes. Um, they run out of food. And from her point of view, a species don't hold back. It isn't like the protozoa say, you know, when, they, when the walls of the Petri dish come close, they say, oh, wait a minute, we're starting to run out. We better um, stop. They don't do that. They run right to the edge and that's it. And that's what to her, looked like we were going to do. I was reading uh, some Roman history and the, the fall of the Roman Empire, Rome, mm -hmm. anyways. And, um, you know, it wasn't necessarily vandals and goths storming mm -hmm. Rome. What had happened was that the first of a series of, of, of bubonic plagues erupted throughout the 400s and 500s. And, and then at the same time, massive eruptions that uh, poured massive amounts of... of uh, of stuff into the air, which caused a, a little mini cooling and a, and a huge decrease in food production in that area that was dependent on that Rome was dependent on, and and that it was sort of these other factors outside of human control that uh, you know bring bring down even the mighty. This would be the evidence for the Votian side of things. You know what they're saying is Rome was doing more than it could possibly sustain, and nature will eventually come in and. As the expression goes, nature best lasts. So that's the, that's the argument on, on their part. And the Votians um, get infuriated because the Borlogians, the wizards, say, well, looks like we're doing pretty well so far. And to which they say, yeah, it feels great when you jump out of a 100-story window. The first 99 stories are great when you're falling. It's only the last one that's really a problem. Well, the flip side of that is that to say that Rome fell, you know, maybe it's true. But at the same time, the system's in place. People, those who survived, were able to still use the knowledge of Rome and the writings of Rome to maintain a semblance of their culture throughout, well, inevitably leading to the Renaissance. And in fact, there's a, a recent book that's come out called Against the Grain by James Scott. It's a fascinating uh, book, and it argues that these kind of narratives that we have of collapse, like the collapse of Rome or the collapse of the Maya, those people are still there. What's happened is they moved to a different kind of configuration um, that doesn't involve the centralized control and big monuments and so forth. And in fact, people might have been better off um, – you know, it, not being part of the Roman Empire, which, what was it, a third of the Romans or were slaves or what have you? If you were an average Roman, you might have been better off in the Dark Ages than you were the quote-unquote Dark Ages than you were when you were under Roman citizenship. So these things are, you know, kind of compli complicated. But again, the role of biology, just as which is your main point, you know, cannot be uh, denied. That plague of Justinian, which you're talking about, the one in about 600, really was a nasty thing, and it wiped out something like a third of the population of Rome. So when you look at um, th these arguments, I think you said on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday you're a Borlagian, and on Tuesday and, and <laughs> Saturday you're a Votian, and on Sunday you don't know. Um, what, what, for you as a skeptic, to looking at these things, what value do you get from, from thinking about these things this way and, and being seesawed by these arguments? 
Well, one of them is that I think if we recognize how much of this is involved with a moral kind of argument, there's a certain – I don't know what to call it. There's a certain kind of argument when people pretend that they're really arguing about practical things and factual things, but they're really arguing about you know what their ideas are of right and wrong and their own status and these kind of emotional ideas. And this is one of those. Um, it's these, these quarrels between the wizards and prophets go back to things like the fights between, you know, Hamilton and Jefferson about the right way to live um, between um, uh, Gifford, you know, in the Northwest. This will have some resonance between Gifford Pinchot and uh, John Muir. There's been long debates about how much is nature really available for us to use? You know, is nature something that has its own integrity or is it just a, you know, a set of toolboxes that we can use? And underneath the Votian um, argument is something that nature has its own. What is it? It's a it's a it's it's its own value, I guess would be the word. And we shouldn't mess with it. And the, underneath the Borlaugian argument is the idea that you know it's just brute matter, and we can do with it what we want. And the the if you start off there, you end up with very different conclusions about what a good life might look like. I, I've been thinking as I was reading this book, I've been thinking a lot about uh, the place of elephants on the planet. Because there are there doesn't seem to be a lot of room for elephants in the wild if you take a Borlagian view of things. What do you think? Um, well, that's exactly it. You know, a a a, a wizard, a Borlagian would say, "Okay, what good are elephants? Well, we like them. Okay, so let's put aside a little bit of bit, bit of land because um, they have some value to us because people like to take a trips and see an elephant." Um, you know, it's purely instrumental. Uh, a, a prophet would say, no, look, this is a product of evolution. It's part of um, an ecosystem with its own history, um, with its own meaning, with its own in in integrity. We can't just simply say it exists on our sufferance. It needs to have a place because of its own intrinsic value. And there's a real fundamental um, difference there. Of course, there's also what's what's occurring now is that at and this is I don't know if this is a wizard or a prophet at, at play here, but people are mm. in, in uh, Russia. There's a, a, a writer who I think I even read about him in uh, The Atlantic uh, uh, who has Pleistocene Park, this idea that we've noticed that these mm -hmm. large mammals plowing up the uh, tundra actually create more and better environment for other animals and um, secure more carbon. Uh, and that that understanding the full implications of of an ecology seems to argue for um, both a profit view, hands off, but applying the the science to encourage that uh, that growth. So, uh, well, there's a difference there, though. I would um, Votian's prophets really see themselves as taking in the laws of science. You know, what they're saying is the laws of ecology are telling us this. The laws of biology are, are, are telling us this. They don't see themselves as non-scientific and they get furious when um, wizards say, oh, you're ignoring the science. They say, no, we are um, paying attention to the kind of science that you find inconvenient. And so I would say that those guys um, who are working in the, on the Pleistocene Park, are, they're straight up prophets. They're trying to um, create something that has, as they see it, a value of its own. Um, and they're trying to mimic natural processes. They're trying to harness natural processes. Just in a certain sense, they're trying to make an enormous organic farm. Only the crop that they're growing is going to be large mammals. Well, well, then let's look at farming as, as one of your examples, because when, mm -hmm. when Borlag looks at things, does he or a, or a wizard looks at things? Does he say we can produce enough for the f the ten billion people that will be on the planet or more in the next one hundred years? 
And we do they then say, and we can do it in a way that still maintains ecosystems for the rest of the world, you know, the rest of the creatures on the world? I think what they would argue is is this. We need, you know, you have 10 billion people. They're going to want to live middle class lives. They're going to want to have the same things that we do. We have to get um, serious about this and produce the maximum amount possible. And that that those areas become like sacrifice zones. You know, you if you produce the ideal thing for for a wizard would be to produce enough food for all 10 billion people on a single acre. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this hyper productive um, and then you can have big parks outside if that's what you if that's what you want. Um, almost always that involves in the practical world of big swaths of monocultures, which are tended by giant machines with very few people on it to the um, prophets are saying, well, you're completely destroying a way of life that has characterized human beings since the Neolithic era of which is the, you know, interconnected rural communities, people close to the land, you're packing everybody in cities. You could do it that way, but it would be a monstrous thing. And instead, what we need to do is have these low impact interconnected um, farms that are very productive, um, but um, much more, you know, using the tools of polyculture uh, with much more awareness of, of the soil and, and, and so forth and much more attempts to mimic natural processes. Well, you talk to some folks who are trying to do that work. Uh, you talk to a, an organic farmer. But uh, one of the things he says right off the bat is there's a lot of people that would have to do that work. Yes, that's the big catch. And um, I feel like the arguments are often about, you know, can this be productive enough or not productive enough? And I think it's much more the the nub of the argument is, are you going to be able to attract enough people to do the labor that's required? We've spent 60 years getting people off the farm, and uh, we've done this in a bunch of ways. It's been del quite deliberate government policy. And the question is, can we go back? You don't need to have um, – there used to be, what, 30 percent of the populace or something like that was on farms even 60, 70 years ago, and now it's on the order of 2 percent. You wouldn't need to go back to 30 percent, but what if you needed 8 or 10 percent? Could you get those people? And I think the only way to do that would be to increase the wages for farm. What this farmer was telling to me is that right now, and he's absolutely dead right on this, we have a whole series of institutions that subsidize big farms that grow grain through using massive chemical inputs, uh, ranging from direct subsidies to price supports to um, all kinds of programs to make it easier to get loans, loan guarantees and so forth, to types of crop insurance, to um, federal laws that uh, suspend antitrust. There's a whole network of institutions that make that possible. And they said, if you wanted to do, and, we, and very few people complain about, well, there's a few economists who complain about the subsidies, but mostly um, people are pretty happy with them. And, they, and similar subsidies exist in almost every developed nation. And so they were saying, if you're really serious about this, why don't you subsidize people, not machines? And if you did subsidize that, maybe you'd get more people back on the farm. Um, this used to sound crazy, but as uh, more and more people have been worried about uh, the loss of jobs through automation, maybe the creating jobs in, in farming sounds less and less crazy. Do you think from the readings you've done and the people you've interviewed, is there the possibility of a food supply that could produce that kind of economy and that amount of food for 10 billion people? Yeah, I mean, it would require um, different kinds of farms, different kinds of institutions, different kinds of people, and also different kinds of crops. You know, if you're going to go um, 
that and that's one of the things that I learned. Tropical agriculture is based on trees and tubers, and they are fantastically more productive than than cereals like wheat and barley and millet and and so forth. And the reason for that is is actually biological. If you think about all the cereals, what they consist of is grain that's grown on top of a spindly stalk, and the more grain you get, the um, the more likely they are to fall over, and that that's called lodging, and it kills the plant. Um, and in fact, Borlaug, the you know, uh, wizard's first and most important innovation was creating wheat that was less likely to lodge if it became more productive. And so, but you don't have to worry about that if you grow cassava, if you grow potatoes, if you um, grow oka or any of the types of tubers, and you don't have to worry nearly as much about erosion if you grow tree crops. And so the argument is tropical culture consists of tubers and trees. It is way more productive than, than cereals. And so when you go to West Africa or Brazil or, or places like that and they see people like me worrying about can we grow enough grain, they, they're, they're, they're kind of bewildered. They say, well, why don't you grow cassava? It's, uh, it's 19 – I think the, the uh, best farms in Brazil in terms of biomass produce 19 times as much per acre as, uh, as, as we do from on the, our top farms in wheat. But one of the people you talk about and I, I imagine somebody mm-hmm. you know – is Stuart Brand, and uh, oh yes, Whole Earth Review, Coevolution Quarterly, Tools for a New Age. Brand and his and and his cohort talking about these ideas for forty, fifty years in some way. Is he a wizard or a prophet? He's a prophet who became a wizard, and <laughs> um, and he's uh, he's actually a a, a wonderfully interesting, uh, smart, nice uh, man, and uh, he's now got this foundation called the Long Now Foundation that uh, brings people to talk and these terrific talks and he's been kind enough to invite me. And uh, his latest book, um, which I would urge all of your people to read, uh, particularly prophets, because it would it would be, you know, it's always good to read somebody who thinks that you're all wet and uh, writes so very lucidly. And it's about nuclear power and why you as a green should be in favor of nuclear power. And it's about genetic modification and why you as a green should be in favor of it and uh, geoengineering and, and that, that kind of thing. And it's a full bore prophet uh, wizard, excuse me, manifesto. Whole earth discipline. Whole earth, Whole earth discipline. discipline. Does he believe that the problems of nuclear power dealing with waste, that the problems of geoengineering, that it can be um, abused, it can go wrong, and it's a big system that we don't really understand, he thinks all those things can be scientifically dealt with, assessed, and um, improved upon? Yes, um, in the simplest way, absolutely. That's his arg- arg- argument, and um, you know, I, I I try to explain some of the reasons that they they think this, um, and this is the sort of part where the where the prophets go on tilt. They go and, on tilt. <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, you know, for for a, a prophet again. Uh, you know, a nuclear waste dump is like a sign of a fundamental imbalance in our relationship to the natural world. And for them, these arguments that, that Brand is making is kind of like arguing that you can put out a fire by putting gasoline on it. Um, it just is it's it's nuts. It's going in completely the wrong uh, direction. And my purpose in the book is really not so much to say who is wrong or who is right. But I think if we can actually understand the basis of, of these arguments, people can make intelligent choices. As you mentioned at the fundamental, it's a it's a question of values. It's almost a question of what what part of the human soul do you believe takes precedence? Absolutely. And I think that uh, instead of so many of these arguments are based on 
sort of ideas. Oh, your idea is not practical. Um, I have a study that counters your idea. And these arguments never uh, went out because that's not what they're about. What they're about fundamentally is uh, exactly which part of the human soul is most important to you. And most of us you know, have some part of our soul that's uh, liberty, I think, is is a really important value to to most people. Community is a really important value to 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 other people. And we have different amounts that we apply. And I think wizards for them, the idea of these free autonomous individuals enabled by technology to maximize their potential in this individual way is a very attractive uh, feeling. And it's something, of course, is deep in the in the um, American heart. But also deep in the American heart is this idea of being embedded in a community of um this incredibly beautiful landscape that uh, our ancestors uh, uh, stumbled into and the need to preserve it. All of these things are, are part of all of us and you can't have every, you can't give priority to all of them. It feels like, and if I'm putting words in your mouth, uh, tell me, but it feels like you're trying to get people to depoliticize the arguments and try to just consider the, um, well, their value. And at the end of the book you have, well, go ahead. Is that is yeah no, is, no I, I, yes yes exactly and depoliticize in the sense that um, the word for example Trump does not occur in my book um, because ultimately I think these are more important than these sort of day to day political fights uh, about this these are these enduring conflicts in the human heart that have been around for a long time but you make an interesting uh, two appendixes where you say okay let's look at what the consensus is about climate change from scientists who work very hard for very many years to try to understand what's happening. And Appendix 2, let's take a look at the consensus on genetically modified organisms and what impact they have on the human, individual human health. It seems, it, well, and your argument is, the consensus on both of these from the scientific community is the same. One of the things that's distressing to me is that there's often... You know, especially in public discussions, these fights about whether GMOs are safe. And there's just really no evidence that they're unsafe. But that doesn't mean that you should accept them. There's plenty of things that are safe that we don't want. And what the real argument about is about is the persistence and expansion of industrial agriculture. And that's an argument that I think that is really worth having. The argument about the safety of GMOs is a kind of a chimera um, because – the people who don't like GMOs don't wouldn't like them even if they were safe. <laughs> you know, they don't like them because they represent, you know, a stepping up in a in a system that they don't like. Is is, and cl this, is climate change the same way? Well, climate change. Then I'm talking about something in, in a certain way. Yes, the people who don't like. Um, climate change, I think, aren't often making reasoned arguments about it. Like the people who say it's a hoax and so forth. It's simply not. And in the book, I try to outlay the basic physical reasons why scientists think it, 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 it exists. But there are two things. There's, there's secondary effects that we don't really understand that can either accelerate or slow down the pace of, um, of, of climate change, which is why when you talk to climatologists, there's always a range of predictions because we don't really understand the secondary um, uh, impacts. And the second thing is just because something is happening doesn't mean that we are impelled to do this course or that course. There's, that's a whole second um, argument. And I, I think the um, what is often felt by op opponents of uh, climate change, this is sort of hoax guys, is they feel that um, environmentalists are, are ginning up this um, crisis as a way of forcing through social changes that they couldn't get through in some other way. 
And so I think you should decouple it and say, look, this is happening, and now we can talk about the response. But let's just agree on what's, ha- on, on what's happening and what we know and what we don't know. Is there still some danger in that politically, just, to, just as a journalist and somebody who covers us, do you think? Because I could, I've heard some climate who have, folks who have gone in Congress from being climate deniers to saying, okay, there is mm-hmm. something here, but since we don't know just what impact it's going to have, let's not pass policies that will hurt X, Y, or Z. I mean, look. People who don't want to do something are always going to find a reason for that. So, right, it's not, you know, just because some journalist says it, they're they're going to find a a reason for it. But also that kind of uncertainty is something we live with every day. Now, is this your, are are we talking to you and you're in your home? Yes. Okay. And do you own your home? Yes. Okay. Do you have householder insurance? Yes. Some kind of fire insurance and earthquake insurance. Do you know if a fire is going to happen? No. Do you know if an earthquake is going to happen? Do you know if a burglary is going to happen? No. But there's a there's a measurable chance. You don't know what it is. And you take preventive measures in case the really bad thing happens. So we as a society know how to deal with risk. There is a non-zero chance that very little will happen with climate change. Um, and, you know, then that's expressed in the IPCC when they talk about the range of, you know, the, of climate sensitivity, when they say what it would happen if we doubled the pre-industrial amount, you know, to go up to 560 parts per um, parts per million of carbon dioxide. And then they say that there's roughly between, you know, one point, I think it's 1.8 degrees C, which is about four degrees and, you know, up to eight degrees C, which is really high, like 11 or 12 degrees. And, you know, it could. Ha- and when they say that, they say that's the two thirds range. So there's one third that's outside. And so there's, you know, very crudely speaking, a sixth of a chance, not much will happen. You know, one out of every six times you run the scenario, not, not that much happens. But we, nobody would say, hey, look, there's one out of a sixth chance that you will never have a uh, <laughs> that you will never have a fire. So therefore, you don't need insurance. You would look at that person like you were crazy who was making that argument. And so I would argue that the real thing that we should be discussing is, OK, we don't know these things. We don't. Uh, that That's fine. So what is the appropriate way to respond to that? How much insurance should we buy? Unless you're uh, in health care and you're a member of Congress, you don't think you should mandate uh, and have an individual <laughs> mandate, right? Uh, right, right, right. And then people try to gamble. And we're in a sense, it's the same gamble, isn't it? Am I going to get sick yeah. sooner or later? <laughs> right. Now, people do and, and people do, you know, make decisions that we think are, are dumb all the time. After making that argument, then do you look at the proposals for geoengineering, seeding clouds, uh, carbon capture, nuclear, and say, mm-hmm. and, and say what? What do you say to yourself when you hear those proposals for dealing with climate change? Well, different. You know, for geoengineering, um, I personally think that we should certainly um, do some research on it. Um, in general, a policy that you should not find out things is not a good one. <laughs> Um, you know, willed ignorance has not been a successful strategy for dealing with very much of anything. So I'm totally in favor of 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 the research. And I would also be in very much in favor of research in 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 carbon capture. Um, there's two types of carbon capture. There's carbon capture for for like coal plants and so forth. And then there's carbon capture from the air. One of the things I would be interested in carbon capture from the air is um, some thoughts about what kind of massive reforestation programs would be possible and what the impacts would be. There's back of the envelope calculations that have been done by mostly um, Europeans. Um, which suggests that reforestation could really have a significant impact in uh, in in on, on on climate change, but on I would also wish that uh, there is the coal companies um, 
would actually open this, uh, the spigots and do some real research on what it would take to capture carbon from their from from coal plants. They've been talking about clean coal for decades and uh, doing doing nothing about it. Right now we have what is it three or four thousand major coal plants. I don't see all of them going away very soon. So capturing some of the coal, carbon from them seems like a really good thing to um, learn about. Two last questions. One, sure. Uh, you've written two books about uh, America. 1491 and 1493, where you looked mm -hmm. at the, well, you know, the impact on, on the continent before Europeans came and then on the impact on the continent after uh, Europeans came. How did that, the research on that book and the thinking about the, that era inform this book? In in two ways. Um, and I'm, I'm, I sort of wish you hadn't answered the question because I'm going to try, uh, the, the truthful answer is really pretentious. <laughs> and, um, but in my mind, they all go together. Um, and 1491 is the past. You know what it was like before Europeans came here, and there's a real you know pivot point in in history. 1493 was about this mammoth exchange, um, biological and economic exchange that was initiated by um, the encounter with with the Americas as the two parts of the world collided, and there was this e collision of ecosystems, collision of economic systems, collision of cultures, collision of religions, and I think of that as the present because that's still going on, and this is the is the future. Um, so that was so. These are like in my mind. Um, it probably nobody else's. This is like a trilogy. Um, I can't believe I actually told you this, but it's true, but it's, it's Make, so pretentious. It makes sense to me in terms of okay. your intellectual and the thinking. Second, yeah. And then second thing is, um, I have a whole raft of, of, um, environmental books. It's something I've been interested in a long time. And one thing they always do, not always do, but, uh, very frequently do is they make predictions. And then you read the book 10 years later and the predictions are always wrong. Um, we have just we're just as a species amazingly bad at predicting the future. And so I thought, how can you write a book about tomorrow that won't be outdated in a year when your predictions are wrong? And that, that's why I say at one point in the book that this is a book about the future that makes no predictions. And one way I was thinking was to talk about the things that happened in the past that inform the ways we look at tomorrow and the choices that we will have to make tomorrow. And so when, on Sunday, when you're in the midst of your, your conflicts and you sit down with your children, um, three children, right? Yes. Uh, God, yes. <laughs> You've read a, it carefully. What questions, what questions do you want them to ask or what's the discussion you want them to be having? This is a really interesting way, way of thinking. So what do I want? To, I want them to be as aware as possible of the consequences of what they're doing and their, their own position. I don't want, but but also not to be paralyzed by that, you know. I I think. I I want them to know we we live in a house that uses, very little carbon, it may be net zero. It's sort of hard to we 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 pump we have a big solar array we pump a lot of electricity in, but we we also use gas to cook. So and I'm not quite sure how it all balances out, but it's very close to to zero. But it took us a long time to achieve that. Um, I want them to be aware of you know, the, the, the systems that they're, they're, they're part of and to be good citizens, essentially uh, there, there's, there's a, there's the sh next time ask me this question, I'll, I'll have a much better answer instead of working towards it. Um, and that, that answer is I would very much like them to be good environmental citizens and not just in the sense of recycling or something, but aware of what the issues are. I would like them to say, have some basic understanding of how climate change works and the potential consequences. I'd like them to have some basic understanding of how the food that's in their supermarket got there and what they think about it. And that's something that most of us are quite oblivious about. And in a sense, I wrote this book 
Um, and here's another pompous uh, thing, and I'm sorry it's so pretentious, but it's true. Um, you know, in my mind, as something that a college freshman could read and would have the basic tools to be to be a citizen in this way. Good answers. Good answers, sir. Um, all right. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. It's my pleasure. Good. And uh, I look forward to your, your visit to Seattle. Oh, me too. It's, it's my hometown. Yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah. can go back and see what Bellevue looks like now. <laughs> it's frightening. Um, it's so different that uh, at one point I took my wife. Uh, we, I was actually lived in Woodenville, um, and they didn't have any schools, so they, you know, we got busted into uh, Bellevue. And I took my wife to see one of my parents' old homes, and I couldn't find it. I, I, it was humiliating. I was lost in my hometown. (laughs) Well, Woodenville, I mean, what a change. Yeah. This is before they punched through 520 and, you know, Mobax was the only thing. And then also Good Time Charlie's. Those were the two big institutions (laughs) (laughs) because there was some sort of line that was from the, you know, the center of Seattle and you couldn't have hoochie cooch girls and you were allowed to have them um, at, at, you know, when you, by the time you got to Woodenville. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. That's true anymore. I don't know. I I suspect not. And, and so it's a good thing, I guess, that uh, Woodenville became a suburb of Microsoft because otherwise they were lost. I, uh, good time Charlie's was its major economic institution. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to look for that place. I'm going to look for it. I mean, I know it's All gone, right. but where it was, you know, what its, what its reality was. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate oh, the book, pleasure. too. I really appreciate oh, the book. All right. Take care. Really a pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Charles C. Mann, his book, The Wizard and the Prophet, Two Remarkable Scientists and Their Dueling Visions to Shape Tomorrow's World. A lot of the authors you hear on this podcast are visiting Town Hall Seattle. I'm also doing a podcast with them called In the Moment, where we take a look back at some of the interesting talks that have occurred the previous two weeks from the time the podcast drops. And we look ahead to interesting guests who will be coming up. There I take an excerpt from these longer conversations that appear on at length. I hope you'll look up in the moment and subscribe to it. I co-host that with Ginny Palmer. Thanks a lot.